0: Matthew 5, page 969 in the church Bibles. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, down to verse 26. 969. God's word reads Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Steve.
1: Should we pray? Lord, open my mouth to speak your word. Open our ears to hear it. Open our hearts to receive it. And strengthen our wills to obey it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We continue the series working through Matthew chapter 5 through 7 on the Sermon on the Mount and when Jit asked me if I would um, preach um, one of the messages from the Sermon on the Mount um, I expected that it would be quite challenging. Um, They always say that the preacher preaches first to him or herself, but I hadn't quite realized how challenging it would be. And I think that will become clear as we look through the passage together. It started for me, I think, in one of the verses that Adam just read to us. And it's this verse here in um, chapter 5 and verse 20. And Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, St. Paul, you may remember, writes to the Galatians and talks about his Jewish heritage. And he said, I'm a Pharisee. I'm born of the tribe of Benjamin, and as concerns the law, faultless. So when Jesus talks here about one of the commandments, thou shalt not kill, shalt not murder, that's fine. I was going to start, actually, with a straw poll and say, um, hands up. Please don't do this, by the way. But I was going to start with a straw poll and say, hands up everybody who's committed murder. And expect not to see any hands go up. There are some churches where one or two hands would. There are some churches where one or two hands would. But I expect in our church that no hands would go up. And if I then went on to say, hands up, everybody who has ever been angry, I expect all of our hands would go up, mine included. But St. Paul said that in terms of the law, in terms of the Ten Commandments particularly, he was faultless. I looked through the Ten Commandments and I thought, murder? No, I'm okay on that one. Adultery? No, I'm okay on that one. Coveting? Not so sure about that. Bearing false witness? Telling lies? It all begins to feel a bit pressing, doesn't it? of course, when we look at what Jesus says here in talking about murder and goes on to talk about even if you are angry with your brother or sister, where does that place you? I thought this is much, much more challenging than I had thought it would be. Hands up everybody who thinks Jesus got angry. That's a great relief. That's a start at least, isn't it? There's something particularly challenging about this passage for us. And I wonder if this rings any bells with you. This is um, a theologian called Frederick Buchner. And he's talking about anger. And he says this, of the seven deadly sins... Anger is probably the most fun. To lick your wounds, smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations to come, in many ways it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to you. Because there's something about us, isn't there, that likes to nurse anger, to feel justified in doing so. And yet, I'm sure all of us would recognize that as anger begins to take hold, and it grows, and it festers, it begins To destroy us. I once heard somebody to say that um, to bear resentment and hatred against somebody else is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. So it's particularly challenging. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the thing I believe we find most challenging is that Jesus is not dealing, as St. Paul said, with the outward, with the external. He's getting down to the heart and to the root of the matter. I read a quote recently that said this, the Sermon on the Mount outlined the most radical social doctrine ever promulgated. I wonder if you know where the quotation came from. Well, it wasn't the Archbishop of Canterbury. It wasn't the Pope. It wasn't a famous preacher or theologian. It was written in the Sunday Times, on the 21st of August this year. So even secular writers, those who may know nothing, particularly of the Christian faith, recognise that there's something very fundamental here. There's something that goes right to the root of who we are as human beings. Were we to turn on a few chapters in Matthew. We'll find in chapter 15 and verse 19, Jesus saying this, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So what we find Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount again and again is going to the heart, is going to the root of the matter, is going to where it all comes from. If you like, he goes upstream to where it all starts from, to where it flows from. You see, what we like to do is to work with the externals, to work with the outward, to work with what's easy, with what we can see the Pharisees felt that the Ten Commandments and the books of the law were like a sort of highway code. Do this and don't do that and everything will be all right. But actually what Jesus is saying is it's not a highway code. It's a highway. It's a path along which as we travel our relationships are transformed and we are transformed through that. Our relationship with God and with others is transformed. So it's not about regulations, it's not about rules, it's about relationship. And time and time again we find Jesus saying this. When somebody spoke to Jesus and said, Which is the most important commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and prophets hang upon these. The Pharisees have multiplied and the scribes have multiplied the number of rules and regulations beyond all limits, beyond what any reasonable person could even Remember, let alone keep. And yet Jesus said it comes from the heart. And so when we look at the passage, he's talking here about the external act of murder. In verse 21, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to to judgment it's probably worth unpicking that a little because the Greek word that is used for anger here is better translated probably in the New English Bible or in the Amplified Bible as nursing a grudge is continuing in anger is what Buchner you remember with our opening quotation was talking about that sort of Um, continuing in it. When um, my wife and I first married, um, I was still in the Navy. I was based um, here in Portsmouth. Uh, But we were living up near Halifax in Sorby Bridge. And so each weekend, um, I would wander through the dockyard, get onto the train, uh, Portsmouth and Southsea, Um, go up to London, get off at Waterloo, go across on the Tube, get on at King's Cross, go from King's Cross to Leeds, change at Leeds, and get the train to Sorby Bridge, and then I'd get my bag, and I'd walk from the station right the way up the hill. You can imagine it took quite a long time. And one particular Friday, at the end of the working week, I made the journey, and I got to the door and my key was in my bag. I don't know where I'd put it, so I rung the bell, and the door opened, and before I'd said a word, I hadn't said or done anything, this great tirade swept over me. I don't know what had happened that day, what what had set it off. Um, I don't think it was anything I'd said or done, because we hadn't seen each other for a week. And I was infuriated. I was absolutely infuriated. So I thought, you know... I don't need to stand for this. So I picked my bag up again. And I walked back down the hill. And I was fuming. And I got to the station at Sorby Bridge. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw not my wife, but the Methodist minister who'd married us, who we lived two doors down from. Um, Lovely, lovely man. Wise old minister wending his way up the platform. And I thought, oh, here we go. And he came and he plonked down next to me. And he leaned across and he said, what would you do? And he said, she'll go and have a cup of tea. She'll calm down in a bit. And you know, it was such wisdom. It was none of this, oh, well, shall we have a word of prayer, brother? because I'd have told him where he could stick his prayer at that particular moment. And it was no trying to explain or diminish what had happened or demean it or say it didn't. He just said, what would you do? So we had a cup of tea, and eventually I took one bag and he took the other, and we went up up the hill. And I went in, and we had a lovely weekend. But, you know, my wife... And our minister they were wiser than me because had it been down to me I'd have got on the train no mobile phones in those days so we wouldn't have had um, angry texts which hopefully would have led into something less angry and reconciliation and I'd have made the five hour five and a half hour journey back to Portsmouth And it would have deepened. And that sense of burning injustice and resentment would have grown. But they were wiser than I was. And I wonder if over the course of that journey and the following week, I'd let that grow. Where might it have ended? But the wisdom and the love of God, what Jesus is talking about here, He says, don't let your anger grow. Don't nurse it. Because it's like murder. It kills things. It kills relationships. And if it kills your relationship with other people, it will just as surely kill our relationship with God. We said at the outset that although all of us would put our hands up to say that we have been angry, we also recognize that Jesus was angry on occasion. And yet we know that Jesus was without sin. So there is a right anger and there's a wrong anger. The right anger is in response to things that damage the honor of God and damage and hurt others in their fragility and in their vulnerability. There's a lovely story told about Desmond Tutu, um, who, as Archbishop, somebody said to him in South Africa, why are you always on your soapbox, angry, declaiming this and declaiming that and getting involved with politics? Why can't you just stick to peace and love, which is what archbishops are supposed to be about, and keep out of all of this politics? And his answer was, he said, my friend, after a while of pulling people out of the river, I need to walk up the bank and find who's pushing them in. That's righteous anger. That's righteous indignation. It's not because our pride and our exalted sense of our own importance has been damaged. It's because those who God has given us to love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself is being damaged. Wrong anger, it's all about me, isn't it? It's all about me. It's about my privileges and my reputation. And it comes not from other people. This is what Jesus teaches. And that's what he's saying in that verse, that what is evil comes from within, not from others. There's a story told about um, a monk at the time of the the Desert Fathers. We're going back probably to around the 4th century, but despite the um, antiquity of the story, I'm sure you recognise what's going on here. It says there was a brother in a monastery who often got angry. So he said within himself... I'll go and live apart, alone. And the fact of having nothing to do with anyone will assuage this passion of mine. So he went away and lived in solitude in a cave. Anyone ever felt that they'd like to do that? Well, here's what happened. Now, one day when he'd filled his jug with water, he put it on the ground and suddenly it fell over. He picked it up, filled it, and it fell over again. Having filled it a third time, he put it down, and it fell over again. He was furious and picked it up and broke it. Coming to his senses, he recognised that he had been deceived by the enemy and said, Since I have been overcome, even after withdrawing into solitude, I will go back to the monastery. For everything, everywhere there is warfare, endurance, and the help of God I wonder how many times you've either said or heard somebody say "Um, I love God it's other people I can't cope with or even I love God it's just the church I have difficulty with you see Jesus doesn't allow that it's not an either or it's a both and we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, not all your neighbor as yourself, but and your neighbor as yourself. There's something in us that reacts when somebody tries to push us off the pedestal we like to stand on, when somebody doesn't give us the respect that we believe is due to us. I found this quotation some time ago in um, Celtic Daily Prayer, and it stayed with me ever since I read it. It said, the other morning, some of us were together in a church where the rector was saying morning prayer and leading us in guided silent prayer. And he said, let us pray for those whom we love. And that was easy. Then he said, let us pray for those whom we do not love. And there rose before my mind three men for whom I had to pray. They were men who have opposed my work. In this, they may have been wrong. But my wrong was in resentment and the feeling of letting myself be cut off from them and even for praying for them because of it. Years ago, I read a quotation from Mary Lyon that recurs to me again and again. Nine-tenths of our suffering is caused by others not thinking so much of us as we think they ought. If you want to know where pride nestles and festers in most of us, That is right where it is. And it's not the opposition of others, but our own pride which causes us the deepest hurt. I never read a word that penetrated more deeply into the sin of pride from which all of us suffer, nor one which opens up more surgically our places of unforgiveness. That spoke very deeply to me. I wonder if it speaks to you. One of the things I love about reading what Jesus has said is that Jesus always answers the question, how? Many years ago, I heard Nicky Gumbel um, speaking, and he said a great friend of his, um, the evangelist J. John, was sitting, having a cup of coffee with him, and he said, you know, the trouble I have with so many sermons, Nicky, and um, what happens in church, he said, I sit there and I hear people say, you must pray more, and I'm nodding, and I think, yes, but how? And you must read your Bible more, and I'm nodding, and I think, yes, that's great, but how? And, you know, you must witness to your faith, and I think, yes, but how? But Jesus talks about the how. In a remarkably practical way and let's look at that he says in verse 23 if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift have you ever tried to pray or to worship God when your heart is full of anger. Not easy, is it? Because, as John said in one of his epistles, how can we love God who we have not seen if we can't love our brother and sister who we have seen? We keep some of this in the communion service when before the act of communion... We offer one another a sign of peace. And depending on which church you're in, um, some sort of nod very politely and shake hands. Um, other churches, they'll wander around hugging one another. There are some where people are leaping across the pews to get to one another. But the point of it is that before we make our offering to God, we need to make our peace with our brother and with our sister. I wonder if you recognise in yourself areas of anger that you've nursed over years, a sense of injustice, something that somebody has said or done to you, something that you feel has wounded or damaged you, and you've kept it alive, you've nursed it, and it's begun to put down its roots. Can I plead with you, in the name of Christ, tonight, to make an act that will move you in the opposite direction? If you've read um, any of Corrie Ten Boom's um, work, this may be already familiar to you. Corrie Ten Boom is the author of The Hiding Place. And she tells in that book a remarkable story of forgiveness, uh, of forgiving a guard from the concentration camp where her sister died. And it's worth reading in full. She says this It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy set man in a grey overcoat a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land and I gave them my favourite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and spostiga. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy, her sister, died in that concentration camp. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my notebook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner "'among thousands, but I remembered him "'and the leather crop swinging from his belt. "'It was the first time since my release "'that I had been face to face with one of my captors "'and my blood froze. "'You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk,' he was saying. "'I was a guard in there. "'No, he did not remember me. "'But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian.' I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? And he put out his hand. I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, but it seemed to me... Like ours, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Those who were able to forgive also seemed able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. Those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and terrible as that. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of our feelings and the temperature of the heart. Help me to lift my hand. I can do that that much. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. There's a very fundamental message in there, And that is that forgiveness starts with an act of the will. It's not to do with feelings. It's not saying, I don't feel less angry now. And I'll wait until I feel less angry before I forgive somebody. But if we nurse it, if we allow it to grow... It will destroy, not just our relationship with others, but our relationship with God. In Ephesians 4.26, we find this. It says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and so give opportunity to the devil. Yes, there is an anger that is right and we see it in the life of Jesus himself as he looked at those who damaged and misrepresented the glory and the honour of God and as he saw those who by their actions damaged and hurt and made more difficult the lives of those who were fragile and vulnerable. But Jesus didn't stand up for his own rights. He didn't stand up to say, I will not be crucified. I will not be put to this shame and this ignominy. I wanted to just finish with two school mottos One's from a school in Portsmouth and one's from a school up in Yorkshire. I believe the first of these has now been changed, which is why I feel free to use it. But the motto is this, work hard, be nice, no excuses. Some of you may recognise it. Work hard, be nice, no excuses. It's hard to argue with that, isn't it? As a school motto, you wouldn't say, be lazy, um, be horrible to people, And, um, you know, always make excuses. You wouldn't do that. The other school motto from a school in Yorkshire is this. I am third. Third. Who was the third man to land on the moon? right, who was the first man to land on the moon? Who was the second man to land on the moon? Aldrin. the third man you see what I mean we say what well, third I am third third is nowhere I don't want to be third I want to be first I want to be at the top but what the school motto is saying is God first others second me third you see for all we would say It's to do with me working hard at obeying the commandments. It's to do with trying to be nice. Nobody can argue that you should not be nice. And no excuses. But where is the grace of God? Where is the right ordering? Because unless we put God first, unless we love others as ourselves we're not even going to be able to receive and know the love of God and his strength in overcoming these reactions that come up within us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you set the standard so high that we cannot attain it. And so, Lord, we need to come to you. And we confess our weakness, our failure, and our sin, knowing that you, a loving God, when we put you in the right place in our lives, will fill us with your spirit and your grace and not only forgive us but raise us to new life that through your strength and through your love we will walk aright. Lord, we give to you all the anger and resentment And hurt that may have built up in us over many years. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us. We turn from it and we turn to you. Lord, give us the strength to lift our hand, to make the move, to make the act of will that will start to heal and to forgive and to bring us into right relations again. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.